Welcome back to another episode of Crime Beneath the Vines. I'm your host, Willow Dawn, and today we're going to be wrapping up the infamous story of Raymond Salcedo. In part one of the story, we covered everything leading up to the early morning hours of April 14th. In part two of the story, we covered everything that happened on April 14th, leading up until Raymond's arrest on April 19th. And in this episode, we're going to cover everything that has happened since. Following Raymond's arrest, he was very forthcoming with the order the sequence of events went down. Raymond's confessions to all the crimes provided police with an accurate timeline and greatly assisted their understanding as to how the events of April 14th developed. Following the murders, it was determined that there was a level of thorough planning laced throughout the crime spree, suggesting it wasn't as impulsive as people had previously thought. Raymond chose efficient weapons and utilized a strategy of attack that required organization to be successful, which he very much was. An example of this was represented in the Richards residence, when Raymond had lied to Marion Richards to get her isolated enough to knock her unconscious. Then he methodically killed her daughters before finishing her off at the end. This partnered with his ability to travel from one crime to another with concentration and precision is inconsistent with the mental impairment he'd be expected to have following such heavy drug and alcohol use. Witnesses had testified that following the murders, Raymond was heard acting as though his family was still alive. On October 30th, 1990, a jury found Raymond Salcedo guilty of six counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and two counts of attempted murder. On November 16th, 1990, Raymond Salcedo was sentenced by a jury to the death penalty. Attorney Martine Miller had contended that Raymond was under the influence of cocaine and alcohol during the time of the slayings, and so he should only be receiving a verdict of second-degree murder or manslaughter under the circumstance that the drugs had put Raymond in a state of psychotic depression when the rampage began. Raymond still currently sits on death row in San Quentin Prison, and San Quentin actually has not executed anyone since 2006, so it's extremely likely that's where he will remain until the end of his days. In prison, Raymond has been described as bright and well-organized, which contradicts his consistent claims that he suffered brain damage from a childhood biking accident. In prison, Raymond has been known to spend a lot of his time reading in the jail's law library. He has also been known to keep books about famous criminal cases with him in his own cell. And when I hear things like this, it makes me wonder why murderers are allowed access to content that could enable them further. Since his conviction, Raymond has actually made multiple attempts to get out of prison by utilizing something called habeas corpus petitions. It appears he's filed three of these, the first in 2010, the second in 2013, and the most recent in 2020. Now, habeas corpus petitions seek a person's release from prison unless there is a reason good enough shown for their continued incarceration. So Raymond was trying to utilize these habeas corpus petitions as a ticket out of jail. Now, two of these habeas corpus petitions were actually filed with the Supreme Court. However, in 2016, voters approved Proposition 66, and Prop 66 actually ended the practice of capital murder defendants initiating habeas corpus proceedings in the Supreme Court. So the last habeas corpus petition was introduced in San Mateo County, a local level. 
Now, if you're wondering why this was handled in San Mateo County, it is because a habeas corpus act has to be served to the court which imposed the sentence. And so Raymond was tried in San Mateo County, not Sonoma County. And that is because too many Sonoma County residents were familiar with the case. So in order to get a right to a fair trial, Raymond was tried in San Mateo. Now, I'm sure you're wondering what happened to the survivors of this attack. Following Raymond's official conviction in 1990, one of his surviving victims took action against him. Kenneth Booty, the winery worker who Raymond had shot in the shoulder, actually won a lawsuit against Raymond, and Raymond was ordered to pay $400,000 to Kenneth to compensate for the wounds that he had suffered. The lawyer for the case, Chris Andrian, had actually said that Ken and his wife, Terry, would likely not see any actual payments from the lawsuit. The suit was filed more as a precautionary lawsuit so that if Raymond was to receive any money from anything that could come from his story, like a movie or a book, they would get compensated. This is similar to the lawsuits that happened following the Ted Bundy case. And the little girl who has survived the brutal attack from her father, Carmina, is now all grown up and reportedly describes herself as a solitary soldier. She regularly visits the graves of her mother and sisters and keeps the memories that she still has of them close to her heart. In 2011, Carmina did an interview with 60 Minutes in which she spoke fondly about her sister's respective personalities. She remembered Sophia as being the oldest and very quiet and reserved, while also being thoughtful and smart. Carmina described herself as the crazy middle child, always getting into stuff, climbing up drapes, running off, or getting into trouble for some other reason. Meanwhile, Teresa was described as the youngest. She was kind of like a combination of Sophia and Carmina's personalities. Prior to the 60 Minutes interview in 2009, Carmina shared her story through an autobiography titled Not Lost Forever, My Story of Survival. And this book related her difficult life following the attack and her eventual return to Sonoma County and hope for a better future. In the book, we discover that following the brutal attack, Carmina was adopted by an extremely Catholic Midwest couple who she described as being physically and psychologically abusive. Shortly after adopting Carmina, her new parents took to erasing her identity as best as they could. They even changed her name from Carmina to Cecilia. To her new parents, Carmina died on April 14th, and Cecilia was reborn. In her book, Not Lost Forever, Carmina often recalls being slapped and demonized regularly by her adoptive parents. If she was ever disrespectful or mouthed off, her punishment would be enduring the pouring of Tabasco sauce onto her tongue, or even maybe holding a bar of soap in her mouth. Carmina's adoptive mother would even accuse Carmina of being possessed by a demon, like her father was before her. Her adoptive parents frequently spoke of finding a priest that could conduct an exorcism on her. And Carmina actually admitted in her book she was never exorcised, but her adoptive mother would constantly wake her up in the morning by throwing holy water in her face. In a desperate effort to escape the abuse that she faced at home, when she was only 17, Carmina joined a Nebraska convent. She became a cloistered nun at a Catholic church. But after less than a year, she actually quit the convent and looked for a new home at a ranch for troubled teen girls in Idaho. A few years later, when Carmina was about 24, she was trying to come to terms with her father's attack, and she actually made the difficult decision to meet her father for the first time as an adult. It had been nearly 20 years since her father had slashed her throat and left her for dead right alongside her sisters. 
But after hearing about Raymond's apparent religious conversion, Carmina's hopes for the interaction were really high. In terms of this religious conversion I'm talking about, in San Quentin, Raymond had actually completed a mail-in seminary class and had begun acting as a minister to his fellow inmates. He would even apparently pose for pictures with children, which I had no idea what kind of person would throw their kid at a man like Raymond Salcedo for a photo. But Raymond took this whole religious thing so far that he would even sign his name Reverend. Unfortunately, despite the apparent religious conversion, Carmina was still quickly disappointed by her father's actions. Carmina had told ABC News that she entered the room to meet her dad with very high hopes and a positive attitude, but her dad entered with an unsettling smile and locked eye contact. Carmina described his appearance as being like the Joker or a clown. He was smiling in a moment when Carmina had imagined he would come up to her crying from remorse or attempting to apologize for his wrongdoing, but instead he was emotionless. A day that could have been therapeutic or even healing for Carmina was instead disappointing, and she left the prison wishing her father could have been able to give her an apology or even an explanation for his attack. While visiting her dad, Raymond allegedly told Carmina that he had seen pictures of her from her MySpace account and even had some of his own personal friends outside of prison looking out for her. This is so disturbing, but Raymond had actually had his friends from outside of prison delivering him pictures and information about his daughter that they could find from online accounts of hers to him in prison for who knows how long. After meeting her father, Carmina confidently decided that she never wanted to see him again, and she had actually told 2020 that she will breathe a great sigh of relief when justice is dealt, referring to the death penalty, and even would put an end to his life herself if she could. Given, of course, California state law, Carmina's wishes will never be fulfilled until eventually fate takes its turn. This brutal attack and then the years of abuse that Carmina endured throughout her childhood has left her with trauma, and she's admitted this is the kind of trauma that will take a lifetime of work and therapy to even remotely get through. In her various interviews, as well as her own personal memoir, Carmina revealed that bright memories of her sisters and mother fade to black when she recalls her father. She was always really intimidated and scared of her dad, and Carmina explained how when he would come home, he'd be drunk to the point of obliteration. She doesn't have very many fond memories of her family together, and actually, she mostly remembers the frequent fights that would occur between her mom and dad. The arguing and abuse only continued to escalate leading up to the attacks, and Carmina was there to witness it all. In one of these situations, Carmina specifically remembered standing next to her older sister, Sophia, in the hallway. And Sophia was actually holding baby Teresa. And the three of them were just terrified watching her father or their father hit and slap their mother. Of course, everything happened that happened. And following the tragedy, Carmina became an instant and prolonged beneficiary of many strangers' kindnesses. On April 13th in 2011, Carmina welcomed into the world her new baby daughter, Zofia Angela Salcido. Following the birth of her daughter, Carmina's life was on the up and up, and she was wanting to get, finally, a proper education. So she enrolled in some classes at Sonoma State. Sonoma State University is a local CSU school, and so between 2012 and early 2013, Carmina was taking some SSU life planning classes taught at the time by Mary Graves. And Mary had admired the focus that Carmina had 
on any related issues to CPS. Carmina was passionate about anything relating to CPS or Child Protective Services because she had already herself had many encounters with them. Now, I want to highlight, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but everything that happened from here on out relating to Carmina is a little bit blurry. We know what we know about Carmina because it's what she has reported on herself or has talked about in her memoirs. But I had actually reached out to Carmina for a little extra clarification, and unfortunately, I did not get a response. So everything I am reporting on about Carmina is taken from and based on reports or things she has said herself in the past. Some local articles from 2014 had described Carmina as having been minimally employed and someone who relied on others for basically their basic needs. At the time, she was living in a Katati apartment, which was being paid for by strangers, again, another benefit of Sonoma County's generosity. At the time, she had also been working for the past few months as a commission-only sales representative for a Sonoma County solar firm um, or solar power firm called Corona Power. Meanwhile, at home, Carmina was facing the possibility of losing custody of her daughter, Zofia. And this was because there was some evidence that Zoe's safety had been in jeopardy at home. This had been determined from factors including drug use, poor judgment on Carmina's part, and chronic domestic violence. The domestic violence was not targeted directly towards Zoe, from what I can tell. However, it definitely appears that Carmina was a victim. After narrowly escaping death from her own parent years before and being a victim of abuse from her adoptive parents, now Carmina was finding herself in the position of having to prove that her own child was safe in her hands. Carmina was also devastated to discover that she was being accused of being a drug addict. She fulfilled all the demands that were placed on her by receiving counseling, completing mandatory classes, including one at the Drug Abuse Alternative Center. Despite the classes and accusations, Carmina denied ever abusing drugs. She admit that she had obtained a medical marijuana card for post-traumatic stress disorder and insomnia, but unfortunately, she still lost custody of Zoe, and Zoe was placed with foster parents. As soon as Zoe was removed from Carmina's home, she immediately quit her marijuana use and had passed all the drug tests in an effort to prove that she was a capable parent. CPS report at the time had said, quote, the reality is Miss Salcedo has a history of having poor judgment and unfortunately, she has not had the opportunity to demonstrate her ability to protect the child from harm, end quote. The updated report to the court noted that on several occasions, Carmina failed to comply with the requirement that on the days she spends time with Zoe, she must phone ahead an hour before picking her up. Those visitations were then canceled. But Carmina had said her failure to comply with the stringent requirements were caused by cell phone and car troubles time and time again. In court, the social worker testified that she, quote, cannot confidently state that Ms. Salcedo is emotionally and cognitively able to demonstrate her ability to supervise, protect, or care for Zoe if the child were returned home, end quote. Mina insisted that throughout all of this, she knew she was capable of dedicating herself to working hard and being what she needed to be to be a good mother to her daughter. But despite her efforts, Zofia's father was actually granted physical custody in 2014, and it appears that circumstances today do remain the same. Unfortunately, Carmina's misfortune has only continued from there. In 2016, Carmina described her life as being at absolute rock bottom. 
she had found herself struggling to buy back her and her family's belongings, which had devastatingly been auctioned off. Crates of photographs, letters, books, family cookbooks, and many other personal Salcedo family possessions were auctioned off by the Santa Rosa warehousing firm after Carmina had failed to pay for storage. Some of the family treasures also included a Bible, some family jewelry, a pair of horsehead bookends that had belonged to Carmina's mother, Angela, as well as a video of Angela practicing to be a model. Now, this video was described as a DVD disc. However, back in 1989, when the video would have been taken of Angela, it would have likely been transferred onto a VHS tape or another form of tape or film. And so I'm assuming that film was later transferred onto a DVD for Carmina. And so this DVD that Carmina was trying to um, get back was not the original copy of the video. In these boxes that Carmina was trying to get back that had been auctioned, there were also legal documents as well as family photos, letters from grandfathers, and other personal things that anyone would want. As I mentioned before, the Sonoma County community had continued to support Carmina for years following the attack. I mean, the storage company where Carmina's family belongings had been stored had done more for her than just store her family belongings. The company had actually assisted Carmina in moving multiple times at no cost to her so that she could move between apartments cost-free. Not just cost-free, but stress-free for someone who really doesn't need more stress in their life. The company had even assisted in the move to the Katati apartments that Carmina resided in for years. In fact, the reason Carmina was even able to still manage to afford her apartment was because of donors from locals who still cared about her enough. But the donations, unfortunately, didn't last forever. Carmina had been getting unrequested support from locals for essentially decades, but some of these locals were starting to consider these decades of support to be enabling. It was reported in local papers that Carmina was made very well aware by the storage company when specifically she needed to get her belongings out, and she had assured them she would follow through. And in fact, actually, the week before the unpaid storage lot auction happened, Carmina was reinformed that her things were scheduled to go to auction and when, so that there were no mistakes and she make, could make sure that her you know, personal things were not going to be accidentally sold. Unfortunately, Carmina was really struggling with money at the time. She was actually living out of her boyfriend's car and didn't have anywhere to put the family belongings even if she could come up with the money for it. So she kind of just let it happen. On February 20th, 2016, a local Windsor resident, Juan Rodriguez, purchased Carmina's storage lot in the auction. Juan paid $333 for five unopened boxes of Salcido's property. Juan was actually in the business of buying unpaid storage lots in auctions and reselling any items with value, or really any items he could resell. It's kind of slimy, but I imagine at the time, he probably thought reselling the famous Salcedo family heirlooms could make him a pretty penny, but little did he know, Carmina would make a plan to try to buy her things back. The community support had once again pulled through because when a local resident read the paper about Carmina's items being auctioned, they contacted her and offered to pay to get them returned to her and stored until she could find a place to store them for herself. Carmina, the supportive resident, and the man who had purchased the belongings all arranged a time together to meet so that Carmina could buy back her things. 
Juan told Carmina that he would give her the items back that she wanted as long as she reimbursed his expenses and covered at least some of what his potential profit from the reselling would be. Juan wanted at least $500 for his $333 investment. Luckily, with the help of the thoughtful and caring local, Carmina was able to get some of the things back. Ultimately, the events of April 14, 1989, created a spiderweb of devastation that's been impacting more people than we could even reasonably count. I truly hope the families and friends of the victims have found or will find peace following all of this devastation. Women Salcedo's attacks were personal and calculated, so I'm very glad the California Supreme Court has decided to keep him in prison and has ignored all of his attempts at habeas corpus acts. I can't even attempt to imagine the amount of distress that would be brought to his victims' surviving relatives if Raymond ever was released from prison. Survivors from Raymond's attacks still endure their long days without their loved ones. Tracy Tuvey was an assistant winemaker at Grand Cru Vineyards, and he was only 35 years old when he died. He left behind his 35-year-old wife and young daughter and son when he passed. Tracy's unexpected departure from this world left his wife, Kathy Tuvey, extremely grief-stricken, but she has become stronger because of it. 20 years after her husband's killing in 2009, Kathy interviewed with the Press Democrat, a local paper, And in this interview, she revealed that following her husband's death, she became extremely protective of her two young kids, which I don't blame her. The continued coverage of the Salcedo murder trial and related news continued to bring pain and torment to the Tuvi family. Kathy found comfort with her friends and family, and she also clung to her faith during this time and found additional support from the church. At the time of her 2009 interview, Kathy was even working as the director of some small group ministries at her church in the Sonoma Valley. As time passed, it became apparent to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department that Kathy Tuvey's pain had been overlooked by the larger community, which was more focused on the devastation brought to little Carmina or Robert Richards. Kathy's family, kids, and faith is the reason she was able to persevere through such a traumatic event. In her own words describing the loss, Kathy said, quote, I cherish every moment of the time shared with Tracy. I live with the pain of the loss, but as a result of my faith, I have also found myself surprised by joy. The wineries a couple of these crimes took place at have also persevered through the trauma. Cundy Vineyards, the property where Ken Booty was attacked, has continued on to be a major name in the Sonoma County wine industry. Cundy continues to operate as a fifth-generation, 1,850-acre estate located in the heart of the Sonoma Valley. The year of the attack, Cundy Vineyards was extremely busy. This was actually the year that the Cundy family had announced their plan to build Cundy Family Winery and Aging Caves, as well as the year they were planting Sarah Lee's Vineyard. The Cundy Family Winery didn't let the attack that might have happened on the property bring them down. They proceeded to complete the first crush of the new Cundy Family Winery in 1990 and have gone on to uphold the century-old Cundy family legacy. The other winery involved in this story, and the one that was much more significantly involved in this story, was Grand Cru Vineyards. So Grand Cru Vineyards as a company continued to operate for a short time following the attacks. 
Still shaken from the attacks, the Grand Crew Winery employees returned to work only one week after their co-worker, Tracy Tuvey, had been murdered on the property by their other co-worker, Raymond Salcedo. The day before returning to work was only six days after the attack. The nine remaining Grand Crew Vineyard employees underwent counseling sessions, and these sessions were actually with three different counselors that came from the Victims-slash-Witness Project in Santa Rosa. And the counselors were there essentially to address the employees' emotions about what had gone down. At the time, the company had said their employees would continue these sessions to work through their grief and fears. It's pretty incredible to me how much effort the remaining employees made in an attempt to return their lives back to normal. I mean, they were absolutely grief-stricken. One of their coworkers was dead and another was wounded in the hospital with no estimated recovery time. Meanwhile, their other coworker had just been arrested for committing all the crimes. I can't even imagine myself having to return so quickly to a normal life when there is nothing normal about the circumstances of April 1989. Of course, at the time, Grand Crew was still an operational winery and there was product that needed to be dealt with. I say dealt with because following the on-site murder, Grand Crew revealed that its wine production would actually remain shut down indefinitely. Meanwhile, the tasting room actually reopened only eight days after Raymond's vicious spree. However, come 1990, the company Grand Crew Vineyards Incorporated was officially dissolved. What happened to the property between 1990 and at the turn of the century is a little unclear, but in 2002, the Pixar film director John Lasseter and his wife Nancy Lasseter founded Lasseter Family Winery on the land that used to be occupied by Grand Crew Vineyards. Between 2002 and 2009, the Lasseters were putting a whole lot of time and effort, their blood, sweat, and tears into the property. In 2009, renovations to the winery were completed, which made the winery a whole lot more eco-friendly. And by 2011, the tasting room was officially opened. The winery currently produces about 1,200 cases of French red wine blends annually, with the capacity to produce up to 6,000. In the scheme of wineries, Lasseter Family Winery is definitely considered a small production, but small definitely doesn't mean bad. The winery grows Bordeaux and Rhone varietals on its 27 acres, and tastings are by appointment. So if you're interested in tasting wine on historic property, don't forget to book a reservation before you visit. Unfortunately, this does conclude the third part of my little mini-series following the infamous case of Raymond Salcedo. I am still currently working on writing the script for the next episode of Crime Beneath the Vines, so stay tuned on all of our social media pages for any updates related to that, and if anyone has any story suggestions or any crimes they want me to cover, also please let me know on our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. Until next time, stay safe out there, y'all.